Welcome back to the Aging Project podcast. I'm your host, Shelley Craft, and together, my friends, we're on a mission to age well, bloody well, if I'm being honest. Let's be real, though. We all need guidance when it comes to aging well, and that's why we've gathered the best possible support team for us. No topic is off limits, and I promise to ask all the right questions, your questions. Before we dive in, don't forget to join our growing community of women from around the world. Sign up at theagingproject.com.au and become part of the Aging Project community. You'll gain access to our treasure trove of podcast episodes, our free five-day morning challenge, and did you know we now have an online store called You Must Try It? It includes products we've discovered from our podcast guests and community. Think low-tox skincare, low-tox makeup, supplements, and more. You'll only find products we've tried, tested, and we love at youmusttryit.com. Are you ready to begin today's episode? Alrighty, let's do it. The reason why it's a longitudinal study is that we follow women over time because we know health is an accumulation of things that happen to you over time. It's not just an episodic thing. That was Professor Julie Biles, today's guest. This amazing lady has dedicated her career to studying the health of women in Australia, 57,000 of them to be exact. Julie has had a front row seat learning from women at different ages and generations across the country. In many ways, today's interview is a preview into the years ahead. It's a chance to learn from the women who've gone before us, and it's also a chance to understand the health impacts for the generations behind us, our children. From arthritis, weight, money, divorce, domestic violence, mental health, gratitude, the aged care system, and so much more, we cover a lot of ground in today's chat. It's worth noting that today's conversation is slightly longer than other episodes, but I encourage you to listen to the end. Julie is a wealth of knowledge. So please make welcome Professor Julie Biles. I can't believe it's taken us so long to actually get hold of you and have a chat because you are the most qualified person that I've ever spoken to. So no nerves on my part. I know I'm in very good hands to talk about the health of Australian women today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yes, thank you. This study that you have done, 57,000 Australian women, tell us how this was broken up and how you came up with the idea. Oh, okay. So the idea came up from, you know, we always stand on the shoulders of giants. So, so you know, our, the study on the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health, and it's, it's a big study with 57,000 women, but a whole lot of researchers involved. So I've had the pri- privilege of being one of the directors, one of the founding investigators and one of the directors for, for many years. But there's been so many people involved, um, you know, across the country and sometimes around the world. So that's been fantastic. But back to the origins of the study, it came out of the women's movement of the sort of 70s and 80s, you know, and then uh, they established a women's health policy. And part of that women's health policy was that we needed a study to understand women's women's health and that women's health is not just, you know, having babies. It's not just uteruses and breasts. It's, it's a whole lot more than that. It's who we are as people, how we fit fit everything we do into our lives and then how that affects us. Um, and, the, and the reason why it's a longitudinal study is that we follow women over time because we know health is an accumulation of things that happen to you over time. It's not just an episodic thing. So that's really the study came about because of a lot of other people um, who set the scene and, 
you know, really worked hard to, to raise the issues of, for women and the issues that are particularly relevant to women's health. And the government at that time uh, commissioned a study and they put out calls for tender and a group of women at the University of Newcastle went hard for that tender. Um, yes, so, and I was very lucky. I was a... Um, I call myself young now. I didn't think I was all that young then, but I was in my early 30s. I just Very young, Julie, very young. <laughs> I just finished my PhD on screening for cervical cancer and how to promote that and uh, looking at what to do next in my life. And, uh, you know, this opportunity came up. And the reason I went with this study was because there were a couple of really outstanding women, Professor Lois Bryson and Professor Annette Dobson, who were going to be joining in um, on the project. And as a young academic, just starting out in my academic career after being a student for so long, I thought, wow, these are like we only had four professors in our university at that time. And I thought, wow, this is a chance for me to learn how to be an academic from these amazing women um, who've really been through, you know, pioneering stages of women in academia. And I guess as your mentors, you were thinking, okay, they might be a little bit older than me. This is this is the perfect group of women to be studying women from all ages because I yes. imagine, as you say, out of all the people that were involved with this, there would have been different interests from all of you oh, about yes. what stages of your life were coming up. That's right. And I was looking at that as well. I actually, um, I was pregnant when we started uh, putting in our uh, submission and I was I just had my baby when we were writing the second part of it so I was actually still in hospital having had a cesarean and so at the time I was like oh well, I've done a lot of work on um, cervical cancer screening I don't want to keep doing just that it's a bit you know confined so I but I thought oh I think I might be really interested in things like uh, you know medicalization of women's health you know I've just had a cesarean I'll be interested in all of that hysterectomies I started doing work, some work looking at women having hysterectomies and why the hysterectomy rates in Australia were so high and so I was very interested in that. I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I'll still be interested in all these things. But in our study, we decided to study women at three ages. So uh, this was back in 19, well, we're, we're writing the submission in 1994 and we started collecting the data in 96. And we decided to study women who at that time were in their late teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. women who were in their early 40s, and women who are in the um, early, oh, sorry, mid forties, and women who are in their early seventies, and we thought, oh, that's captured a nice, like, nice spread of adult life. We never thought at the time about, oh, wow, you know, in thirty years' time, those women in their seventies are going to be a hundred. But you know, of course. But um, I, I guess we sort of were looking that far forward. But it's very hard for anybody to look that far forward, um, except you know, having done a long, longitudinal study, it's sort of like having watched the movie already. <laughs> so so we thought we'd have these three age groups. And we had 12,432 women aged 70 to 75 who completed our survey. And they also wrote on the back of the survey. So there are a whole lot of ticker box, but we also asked them, is there anything else you'd like to tell us? So they did, like they wrote on the back that, of the survey. That's a book in itself, yeah, I would imagine. Good. Yeah, so I read, like, there wasn't, like, oh, some people pinned 12 pages to it, but some people just wrote a few things. I read all, I read all those comments because I wanted to know, well, what were these women saying? So I read all those comments, and I found I was no longer interested in hysterectomies, <laughs> <laughs> cesarean sections. You know, I, you know, I've still been working with people who work on those, but 
but I was far more interested in these women who were in their 70s who just had so much to say. Mm-hmm. And when we looked at their data, I, I think I, um, I wrote an article once which is called Not the Average 70-Year-Old because that's what a lot of women wrote. Oh, I'm not the average 70-Year-Old. But when I had a look at the statistics, they were bang on average. It's just we had the wrong idea. And so that captured my attention back then in 1996. So I've been following that cohort through. Um, I'm a bit of an amateur artist or a bit of an, I don't know, artist. And I so I, I did them a birthday card to send them for their 100th birthday. So that's oh, been a journey with them. What an amazing relationship and friendship yeah. that you would have built with yes. this. Older women and, of course, yep. seeing the younger ones coming through as well. That's right. So, yes, so now the ones that were in their 40s are now in their 70s. So, And so we've got all that backstory on those women. We know so much about them uh, and they're now in their 70s. And, um, and also being able to compare. We're now at the point where we can compare those two and the, the generation behind. And we added a fourth cohort because... Suddenly our young women were in their 30s and so um, we were able to extend the project to add a new cohort of um, people aged 18 to 23 back in um, 2011 or so, yeah. So, yeah. It's just it's mm-hmm. just the most fascinating study. I know everyone loved those movies, the 7-ups, the 14-ups, you know, mm. that we could follow these people through. But to see it there on paper, it's, it's an incredible insight, as you say, not just into the health of Australian women, but an insight into our souls, really, and and how we feel about everything. What sort of questions were did you set out to ask in that initial um, submission? Oh, in the initial submission, yes. So we did want to know about um, motherhood and uh, having children, and but also motherhood. So, mm-hmm. so there was the thing about actually getting pregnant and delivering a child or not getting pregnant if that's where you were at in life and delivering a child or whether you had children early or late. So we had all sorts of questions about that. But then we wanted to know about motherhood and how that impacted on women's lives and also and, and how women juggle motherhood in modern times. How Because we had, you know, Lois was a sociologist. We hadn't had psychologists on the program, statisticians. It wasn't just all medical. So we wanted to know how these things all fit and then how that rolls on to impact on women's health. Uh, we wanted to know about menopause, but we also wanted to know about things like the change, other changes that women go through in midlife, so family leaving and uh, what happens with relationships and what happens with um, work and those sorts of things, so what happens with caregiving. So we are interested in a whole lot of questions like that. The study started out as a survey. Uh, we were limited to what you can ask in a in a questionnaire. So we asked people about what sort of diseases they had, but we also asked them a lot of things about their mental health and psychological well-being uh, and a lot of things about their functional well-being. So, you know, things like can you climb stairs, can you do vigorous activities. We asked a lot about physical activity and we also um, set out eventually to ask quite a lot about diet. So we have an enormous amount of information about women's diets and we've been able to put that through an algorithm that gives us a lot of information about women's nutrients so we can break their diets down to the actual nutrients. So as the study's grown, it's become richer and richer. So it started out as a survey. Then it started out as a longitudinal survey so we could link from one time to the next to the next. But then we've had all these add-ons. So we added on a huge amount about diet. That's been an enormous resource. We were able to link to Medicare and pharmaceutical data so that's been an enormous resource because we know a lot about how women use healthcare, 
And we also know a lot about how women use drugs. So particularly for women in their older ages where they're using a lot of medications, we've been able to look at what medications women are using and how that relates to other things that are happening in their lives. So for instance, a, a PhD student just worked with me and he had a look at the changes in medications before and after women are diagnosed with dementia and seeing this sort of large increase in the number of medications women are on after after dementia. And so, you know, so looking at that sort of thing and um, being able to sort of track what happens to women, we've been able to link to the aged care data. So um, as, uh, working with a uh, particularly uh, student, Ms. Inu Rahman, who's now at Sydney University, um, we were able to look intensively at what's happening as women start to need care start to get aged care and then move through the aged care system. So we've been able to sort of plot that complete journey and how that varies uh, for women across the course of their later life. So it's a really rich study, plus then also there's all that qualitative data in the stories that the women have been telling us. Mm-hmm. Must be a, it's a fascinating read and I know that this will be available to all our listeners to read because it is a study that is out there. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting paper. What does it then get used for? You've got all this data, you've got all this information, who uses it and what changes can it make and what have you seen? Okay, so primarily our our first audience is the government because they fund the study and each year they've asked us to prepare a major report on a particular topic. So the, the last one that was released, and there's a new one coming out, but the last one that was released, actually looking at women in midlife, so looking particularly at that cohort who we've been following from their 40s through to their 70s, but being able to compare them to the cohort that went before and the cohort that's coming after. Mm-hmm. And so we can say, well, what, what is the experience of women through midlife? And uh, what changes do they go through? But also, are is the current generation of women who are in their 70s who are actually, you know, they're the leading edge of the post-war baby boom. So they're in very important historical demographic um, and very important as they age through because we're going to have this large population group, mm-hmm. largest we've ever seen. So so that's very important demographic. And so, you know, are they, they always say, we always say about the baby boomers, oh, they're never going to age like the other other um, generation did. They'll be so different, you know, because, you know, they rocked out to the Beatles and, you know, they burnt their bras and they did all these <laughs> things. So they're going to be different. But I think I look at it and think, well, you know what? The others weren't the average 70-year-old either. They had done all sorts of things, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you think you're you're amazing having rocked out to the Beatles, what about the people who work for suffrage and things like that, you know, who, you know, went through the wars and that sort of thing. So, you know, everybody has their battles and, and that's so. If you get to 70, you're a survivor. If you get to 100, you're a super survivor. So, you know, you survived all sorts of things and developed all sorts of resources. But I think there's some really good news when we look at um, comparing those generations. And we can have the discussion about weight because weight isn't good news. But there are there is there are signs that we've got other improvements. The women do tend to be seem to be a little bit um, healthier and have less disability um, than the previous generation. And um, I think I. I would attribute some of that, and not necessarily to good behaviour, but to good background. You know, these are the baby mm. boomers. They're born after the war. They're pro- born into pros- relative pos- prosperity in, um, in our social history. And they were, you know, educated and were able to go sort of right through. And a lot of the women have actually advanced their education through their middle years as well. So they've had these opportunities. And so I think you know, those opportunities are going to play out 
in terms of um, fitter, stronger, healthier, older adults. And, and we, we know that it, it, it works for our brains, but it also works for our, our bodies. So, and, um, you know, one thing that I think is really important is the ability to adapt to problem solve so you know if we get to be old and we find we've got an issue we don't let that issue beat us if we can just keep going and and work work out the other message I've got out of the older cohort is ask for help when you need help ask for it never be ashamed to ask for help and I think that is an issue with the older cohort that I studied they came from that generation where they were battlers and they did things for themselves and you didn't ask for help but I'm hoping that this next generation will be much more attuned to asking for help, whether it's from friends or family or the government or services or buying it in, getting an Uber, whatever, you know, I think we're a little bit more used to using services. We love promoting companies that support our community age well. So if you're interested in advertising with us, reach out at hello at theagingproject.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Let's have a little snapshot of the, uh, I guess, as you say, your super survivors that are now yeah. heading towards their hundreds. What does their health look like right now? Um, and I guess the ones that have made it to 100, you yeah. could say, my goodness, you know, what an amazing healthy life you must have lived. Yeah. But I'm sure throughout the study you've seen they've had certain diseases that uh, were perhaps not as common oh, yeah. now but were then. What's a snapshot of a, of a centrogenarian now? Yeah, a large group of people say about 20% of people who um, they, they didn't even reach 85 so, you know, we followed them through and they did tend to be people who were of lower socioeconomic status, had less education, seemed to have had less, you know, a bit of a hard to go of it in life and had, they developed chronic diseases um, earlier and disability earlier and they and they died quite early. So we didn't get to stay with them for very long. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a group of people who lived long and they, they developed diseases, but they lived for a long time with those diseases and no disability. So for those group of people, I talk with them, I talk about there being a wide window of opportunity. So even though they might have developed a disease like hypertension, diabetes, um, arthritis, these are the really common diseases that people get and Mm -hmm. the baby boomers are going to get it too. Um, But there's a wide window of opportunity there to react to it. So you might get some medication and all of those things can be helped with medication. With arthritis, you might get restoratives surgery if you you know your hips or your knees give out do that so you can keep active um and also changing your lifestyle being active changing your diet you know that sort of thing so I think there's a really wide window of opportunity to um respond even if you have developed a disease so I think when we think think about prevention we're often thinking about don't get a disease and that's really good advice but if you get a disease it's not all over Red Rover, you know, there's things you can do. So there's a really wide window. It's like 15 years or 20 years of opportunity, 15 years or so of opportunity before that disease starts to translate into disability. Mm-hmm. And then even if you get disability, be asking for help. So then there's a group of people that did get disability um, and there was a small group of people and it was about 6% um, who aged without any disease, without much in the way of disability, and they were just chugging along, just great. We were able to interview about 52 of those women um, at, at in their late 90s. Mm-hmm. And, look, they... What's the secret, Julie? What's the secret? Uh, look, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time those women said lucky, grateful, you know, that that really seems to be a huge thing. Yeah, I think there's some things mm-hmm. called the gratitude 
project and things like that. Mm-hmm. These women just talked about being grateful. It was just like, whoa, you know, it bounced off the page. So that that was one. Um, interestingly, I think almost every one of them talked about church. So I don't know that it's religiosity, but I think it's about belonging. It's having a faith, isn't it, mm-hmm. and what, whatever yeah. that is, just yeah. yes. Yes. Yeah. And sense of humour, my goodness, that's so funny. You know, they'd, they'd say that old thing about, you know, by the time I get out of bed and make the bed, I'm ready to get back into it again. <laughs> <laughs> so their expectation, they weren't expecting to run mm. around and do 150 things a day like I try to do. Um, yes. But, the, you know, but they were enjoying what part of the day they had. And connection with their family and this thing which... Um, I use the label generativity because what they were doing is thinking about future generations. So they weren't concentrating them on themselves and where they're at. They're really giving, and a lot of them were doing, even in their late 90s, knitting squares to give to put together for blankets for whatever charity or whatever purpose. They're, they're really thinking about others, belonging, mm-hmm. interacting, yeah, doing things it- that are in the same regard, as you say, that that may be in a group of women, but they're also working on their dexterity, they've got connection, yeah. they've got yeah. uh, interaction with other people. Was there an ethnic group that was stronger? You know, we hear these blue zones, you know, European, the, the Mediterranean diet. Was there any sort of coalition there between who the ones that, that made it uh, a little bit further than others? Not that we're able to determine from our study, but there's certainly, like I think there's certainly we um, we know that in some cultures some of these bonds are stronger mm-hmm. but I think what we we looked one year at um, rural women particularly because our study we oversampled women in the rural and remote areas we had a look at that and this was the work of a PhD student Jane Rich largely but we also uh, incorporated it into a major report so we had a really good look at what was happening for women in rural areas and the thing there we thought we'd find that women in rural areas had worse health and we know mm-hmm. they don't go to the doctor as much because the services just aren't there. We've got this real tyranny of distance in Australia. But we thought we'd have worse health. We thought it was like there was all sorts of drought and problem. I think areas of Australia had been under sort of adverse conditions for 10 years, whether it be drought or floods or whatever. But um, these women just seemed, it seemed to be that they just had so much resilience and so much to get up and go that that tended to outweigh any of these other adversity, and so, you know, we couldn't measure a difference in them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are differences. They have a higher risk of death from uh, breast cancer. Um, if they get heart disease, they have a higher risk of dying from a heart attack. So uh, there are these differences. But just in terms of measures of their health for those who've survived, um, you know, it was they're just the, the tough get going. They, yeah. they do. They are. They are the backbone of Australia, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. Particularly that generation. Mm. So for the next lot down, our baby boomers now, as you say, they're heading into their 70s and 80s, some of them incredibly healthy, some of them sort of resigned to the fact that, oh, I'm getting old now. Mindset must have played, or as you say, mental health must have played a huge part in yeah. this. Mental health is really important. And look, People often say that mental health gets better with age and it it does up to a point. So a lot of the studies of mental health stop when people are about, oh, sometimes 65, you might be lucky to get them to 80. And because people don't like to survey old people. <laughs> and um, so the um, so a lot of the, the common wisdom was that mental health improves with age. The younger the women we are, the, are, the worse their mental health is. And it seems like the more recent the cohorts, the worse their mental health is. So 
I think mental health for young women is a really big problem at the moment. It's something we really need to focus on. Um, mm. They're doing it really tough. And we found in COVID, they were the ones who were doing it really tough in COVID. But their lifestyles were so different. You, you yeah. also think of your, your 70 pluses during COVID, probably the isolation would have been well, one of the major factors. But yeah. for the, the pressure that you are as a young mum or, or a working oh, yeah. woman um, yeah. is very different. So perhaps you'd already sort of passed over that mental threshold, do you, when you're 60 or, as you say, when you're retiring, is there sort of this lift of a lot of mental pressure? Yeah, I think I think people have a lot more ways of dealing with things and, and not so much insecurity about Am I going to form a relationship? You know, I'm having a baby. I, you know, all that stuff. I mean, it's. I mean, my daughter did have a baby, two babies during the last three years. So, yeah. So, um, congratulations, and, Grandma. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, but what we found when we looked at mental health longitudinally is that mental health does improve with age up to a point. It improves up to about eighty-five years of age, and then after at that, your mental health tends to deteriorate again, and that seems to be associated with the onset of disease, but more importantly, the onset of disability mm-hmm. and pain as well. So these issues will help affect your mental health as you get older. And the other thing will help affect your mental health, of course, if you do start to develop some cognitive changes, these can actually present as changes in your mental health, either anxiety or depression or withdrawing and those sorts of things. So I think the interesting thing about mental health is, it does get better with age up to a point, but I think we really do have to look at the mental health of older people, not just dementia, but things like loneliness is a big issue. It's not just an issue for older people, but it's a very big issue for older people, and it's one that's hard for older people to deal with, partly because society is not really set up to allow them in. So we need to have um, society that enables older people to participate but also because of ageism. And ageism works both ways. It works from the outside, but I think the worst form of ageism is the ageism we have about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So this is where you come to mindset, as you say. So it's not just having a positive attitude. I think it's about being accepting and forgiving of the fact that you're getting older and, you know, writing that into your life. So we talk about a thing called sense of coherence, and it's, been talked about for a long time by various um, scholars. But the way it works is if something happens to you, you write that into your life story, you make sense of it, and you bring together all your resources to write that into your life story as something you can deal with. So this is where COVID might have been different for women who were in their 70s because if they have a strong sense of coherence, mm-hmm. they can write COVID into their lives and say, oh, and actually, you know, the oldest women, they we ask them about COVID, COVID what, you know, uh, just another thing, another <laughs> just thing. another, something else to write on my story. Um, yeah, so, and, and so, yeah, so you sort of write it into your life, you pull together the resources that you have. They might be financial, they might be educational knowledge, they might be people, they might be services, they might be just your internal, you know, strength of character. And you pull all that together and you write that into the story of your life. And so I think that's something that younger people can learn, I think, is the ability to write things into your story mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, that's just part of the fabric of who you are. Yeah. And it's just, it just becomes a strong fabric because it's got more, you know, warp and weft and tapestry through it. Yeah. That knowledge, as you say, for the Australian government to say, okay, we have got, as you say, this enormous mm. population of, of female baby boomers. We now know what's heading their way. Mm. 
What are they doing about it? Do you get to hear about that? One of the things they've been very interested in is what's happening with those young women, mental health of young women. So I think that's that's a big issue that can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be our future older people. They're the future of our society. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of issues um, for them with disrupting times. For older people, like, well, aged care is big item on the agenda and this cohort of baby boomers are moving to the point they are the carers, uh, as I can speak for myself. Uh, they're the carers of, of people who are currently needing aged care and they're going to be needing, um, as many of them are needing aged mm. care themselves. So so that's a big deal and the government is, look, we've been through so many commissions and inquiries and reforms on aged care. I think we know what to do um, and the government is going to respond to that um, mm-hmm. and we look, we the current government that is in place, a lot of the people, the same people who were there in, in 2011 when I was the president of the Australian Association of Gerontology, and that's when we had Living Longer, Living Better reform program. And so there are a lot of elements in that reform program that are exactly what we need, uh, and they didn't follow through. So I'm hoping a lot of them will come back. Uh, the biggest problem with aged care at the moment, two big problems I'll say, one is we don't have enough workers and with the COVID situation and, and less uh, people coming in from overseas, that problem's just like exploded and every, nobody has enough workers now. So we're competing with bus drivers, absolutely everybody. Um, and then so the government has, uh, actually it was the previous government, have funded a program to try to recruit, train and retain aged care workers. So we've got an adequate workforce because no policy is going to work if you don't have the people to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other problem, I think, is to the people to get prepared for their own needs. So find out what you and, you know, maybe one of the best ways to find out is be caring for an older parent and seeing yourself and going, what am I going to do differently when I get there? But, um, yeah, but understand the system, understand uh, that help. So one of the messages I got from the older women is help helps. And so the earlier you get the help, the more helpful it is. You think, oh, I just won't get it till I really, really need it. It's too late then partly because you have to go on a waiting list, but partly because it's probably too late. You want to get help that's restorative, so help for you to do the things you choose to do and have reason to value. So you don't want somebody doing those things for you. You want somebody enabling you to do those things for yourself. So, yeah, so that's on aged care. Look, There's all sorts of things. There's a, a new women's health policy that's brought into focus, like violence, endometriosis, um, you know, all sorts of issues like that for Australian women um, that are big ticket issues that have been um, either ignored mm. or pushed off the agenda or dealt with in different ways. But these these things are right front and centre at the moment, yeah. yeah. Well, let's look after our mums and grandmas first. And if it does come down to uh, looking after yourself, what's coming for them? What are the biggest concerns, I guess, as we'd say, the biggest rocks in the jar that have been gained from this study that they need to be on the lookout for and that they can hopefully make some changes now that will hold them better in the future? Um, Well, obviously, smoking's probably been the biggest threat to human, one of the biggest threats to human health. So if they're smokers, they should um, easier said than done. Um, And is is there a big, I imagine that the... Our, our older ladies, they would have been much heavier smokers than perhaps the baby boomers. Hopefully they've given up, you know, in their in their 40s and 50s. Soon after we'd done the project, we only had ex-smokers or dead smokers because they didn't survive if they were still smoking. So, yeah, 
So they've given up. And most of the ones in the mid cohort have given up. And um, the younger cohort are much less likely to smoke. They might start smoking, but they give it up. Um, mm -hmm. Vaping might change that altogether. We're not sure. Mm -hmm. But the, um, so that's one thing. The next thing I'd say is exercise. And, like, I have to say this myself every morning as well because it's always easy to find reasons not to exercise. Just we do it, Julie. Just right. get out I of bed. <laughs> I, I went for a swim yesterday. I walked down to the beach, went for a swim. It's just fabulous. And then I can't get out of the water. <laughs> that yes. Get the, um, but getting exercise, it doesn't have to be formal exercise, but that can be good for social interaction as well. Mm -hmm. But if you could, I'm quoting someone else here, my good friend John Ward, uh, Professor John Ward, but if you could take the benefits of exercise and put them in a pill, you just prescribe it to everybody because mm -hmm. they're so powerful for so many things, your mental health, your physical health, um, keeping your butt, uh, muscles strong, you know, if, you know, stop, well, you might, Increase having a fall if you're exercising, but you won't have, a, you know, you're not likely to have an injurious fall. So, you know, so exercising is really, really important for all sorts of reasons. Keep keep on learning and engaging and participating and being with people mm -hmm. and work it out, work out your story and work out what it is you choose to do and what you're going to do to keep doing that. Um, you know, just keep being you, I think is really important. I love it. That is great advice. Have we have we seen a shift in, I guess, diseases that are going to affect those generations and obviously moving on to younger generations, things that won't exist by the time that we get into our 70s? So um, not so much uh, new diseases so much, but look, the really common diseases are common. So they're, you know, heart disease, cancer is still, still common, uh, lung disease and uh, arthritis, as well as dementia, mental health problems. And the thing, stroke, the things about these conditions is you don't necessarily just get one and then you're safe from all the others. You you can get all of them. And the older you get, and this is, um, you know, one of our previous reports is about multimorbidity, the older you get, you, the more diseases you collect. Um, and so uh, we are seeing um, not so much more, more diseases. We're seeing the women get the diseases a bit younger, and partly this seems to be associated with obesity. And we are seeing, therefore, we're seeing an increase in the prevalence of those diseases. Because, mm -hmm. But the, the, there's some good news in that too. One is we're probably diagnosing things better and earlier. So diabetes rates have gone up, but that might be due to good diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, our window of opportunity is going to be wider um, and we can do more in it. Um, and so we're also keeping women, because we're treating these diseases really well now and preventing the consequences, people can live with that for a lot longer. So we'll see a higher prevalence of those diseases, but that's a good thing too because it's meant they've survived with the disease. So, mm -hmm. so as I say, diseases are an issue, but we can, like, we need to manage them and we're getting better and better at managing all those conditions. The thing is when you have a lot of diseases together, we've got to work out a way as a system and as individuals and a healthcare system, we've got to work out a way to manage those diseases so you don't become a little ping pong ball that is going from one doctor to the next to an x-ray mm -hmm. to a blood mm -hmm. test to a ct scan to a you know whatever uh physiotherapy and then and that that's your life then going to yes. doctors um and we see that and um you know that's not a good sign um and so you know i think if you can sort of try to manage all those things to be much more coordinated um, and to be the manager of your own case, if you can. So I think that's the thing with diseases is that you're going to get a lot of them um, and you might get a lot of them and uh, you're going to need to be able to manage that in a way that they don't take over your life. 
I guess the point of that too is that they're all, they are all related, aren't they? It's never, Mm. as you say, you're not just going to get one, but chances are in some sort of holistic view of why are these things happening, whether it is my weight, whether it is my lack of exercise, Mm. whether it is my bone density, it's going to affect every aspect and and it is going to whatever you're susceptible to, that's what's going to come to you. So again, right back to the beginning of look after your body now and get working on it now. Diet, exercise, yeah, that sort of thing, but social exercise and and intellectual exercise as well. And um, one of the things with dementia that we found is quite important is hearing. We don't know yet. We know hearing is a big risk and it's a midlife risk. We don't know yet whether if you get a hearing aid or some other way to fix that hearing, you'll necessarily prevent dementia, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you will stay more engaged, you'll engage in conversations and you'll keep those parts of your brain working. So so that's another piece of advice is to get your hearing tested um, and, you know, don't be afraid to wear your hearing aids. It's, it, don't be ageist against yourself if you need to have the hearing aids, just as yes. you would with glasses. Yeah. That is a great piece of advice and glasses, yeah. as you say. Yeah. yeah. The study's yeah. also shown, as you were mentioning before, that our weight is becoming a bigger problem younger you think in in this day and age where you know we know the importance of exercise but also it's readily available there's thousands of gyms thousands of programs thousands of online if if you don't want to go into a social situation where you can do exercise so then it has to come down to diet doesn't it the the age of convenience Um, whereas the older generation are probably eating better than we are now even though we have more accessibility to good food yeah look I think we do know that the 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 Earlier the generation, so the you know the older the, the people, um, the the more fruit and veggies they ate. So the oldest ones were good on their fruit and veggies. The mids not too bad. The, the younger ones terrible. Um, and they sometimes got their fruit and veggies through fruit juice, and you can't do that. Um, so that you know, that's you may as well drink soft drink. But the the so diet is one thing, uh, and the other thing um, is that they were eating a lot of um, chips and things like that. So yeah. Uh, discretionary we call it discretionary food so um so yeah so diet is one thing um we know during covid it, a lot a lot of people got bigger bigger myself included and i think there was a lot of comfort eating during covid a lot of people and and also making cakes and doing things like that baking at home and that sort of yes, thing what so was that, it the banana bread recipe oh, that went yeah, berserk yeah. here <laughs> yes. so that, that's one thing but i think there's more to it than that i think um you can't if you sit all day for your job you cannot make it up by going to the gym for an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's there's that thing about being sitting a lot um, because that has all sorts of metabolic effects on your body, effects on your gut. Um, so that's another thing. Um, so I don't think it's just diet and going to the gym. I think it's 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 more complicated than that, and I think it's something that we still don't fully understand. Um, and you know, I'm always very cautious, cautious when we're talking about weight because I think weight's a very difficult issue because mm. you can easily um, fall into you know body shaming and we we don't want to be doing that we don't want to be blaming people oh your health's all, be, all because of your weight look at you if you only ate and ate better and exercise and you wouldn't have any problems but you know so I don't think it's that simple at all um, but it is really important to I think it's really important to try to keep your weight down because once you gain the weight, it's really hard to lose it and really hard to lose it in a healthy way. We, yeah, we do know we had a look at some data a couple of years ago where we looked at the different cohorts and we looked at what we call the area under the curve. So not just what you weigh but how long you'd been various weights for. 
And so, you know, if you get heavier earlier and you stay heavier for longer, the area under the curve is bigger. And the bigger that area under the curve, the higher the incidence of diabetes. So, you know, I think a lot of our increase in diabetes is pretty well correlated with the increase in weight. Um, and, yeah, while we might be able to treat that all, in all sorts of clever ways with, with medicine, there's nothing like prevention. Mm. Um, yeah, so and I think the advice would be to try to keep your weight in a healthy range. Keep, ex- keep your exercising going, limit your sitting and eat your fruit and veggies as fruit and veggies, not as fruit juice. Yeah. And, again, just having that healthy outlook on life, which improves how you're feeling in your mind, which probably gets you outdoors a little bit more. Obviously, about alcohol and that remember that's fuel as well so that will put the weight on too yeah Mm. have you heard the news our sister platform you must try it now offers one-on-one health coaching via zoom with our team of qualified experts our store exists to offer you more than our tried and tested products we want you to age well and at the foundation of that is your health let me share Lou's feedback one of our recent customers she wrote I still can't believe how much we got through in an hour. I was offered the most detailed personal advice I've ever had. I've been talking to all my friends about their health coaching sessions and my experience. The friends that have already had their session couldn't be happier. Thank you, Lou. So if you're struggling with a health issue, perhaps a gut, a thyroid, weight, energy or sleep issue, or maybe like Lou, you just want to optimise your health, our You Must Try It team of qualified health coaches would love to help you. They can help with everything from blood, hormone and food sensitivity testing to practical strategies so you know what to do and buy that is actually going to work. Just go to youmusttryit.com and book your appointment and let's take action to age well, my friends. The study concentrated a lot on abuse and violence and it has Mm. been obviously um, more in the forefront in the last five years than ever before in this country. What did the study show there? Well, you know, quite a lot of women will have experienced some form of intimate partner violence um, and it has long-lasting effects on women's health. Um, Very early in the study we looked at getting help. We did a fairly intricate study looking at uh, if you went, if you sought some sort of intervention for uh, being in a violent relationship with a partner. And what we found in that study was that that was success, largely successful. It's a very difficult thing for women to do. It's a very precarious thing to get help, especially if you're in a rural town. Um, where where are you going to go for help? Because everybody knows everybody. Mm. But um, it did it did seem within our data that again help helps. So if you can get help, if you're in a violent relationship, you, if you can get help, um, that would be the first thing that's most important. The impacts of the of the violence will be um, play out across the women's lives, but there is also some opportunity for recovery. Um, so because we're strong, it's you know, we're strong and we're resilient and we do recover from things. Um, the thing about the violence is that it is so common um, in our society and uh, we really do need to be talking about it. We really do need to be uh, making help easily available and safe for women mm. to get, yeah. Mm. Mm. I think it does also affect all those attitudes if it's your loss of independence obviously your financial uh security often comes with with that partnership so it's not oh, and just children. you know yes. children are in the, so that's 
complicates it completely. You're not just mm. protecting yourself, yeah. Mm. So, again, with the study, Julie, did it show that, that women in their 70s weren't as exposed? Is it something that's just affecting the, the younger women in our community? No. Were, um, they, were they as prepared to talk about it perhaps in, the, in their 70s about relationships that they'd had or experiences that had or was that just life, in inverted commas, for, for yeah, women in their so 70s? We have a, a student at the moment who's completing a PhD and she's been looking at what the women said in their comments because the women don't talk about abuse. Um, and they talk, they use all sorts of other terms about that we might imply that they're a little bit afraid or they're nervous or, you know, I have to be careful not to anger him or words like that. Uh, so they weren't so ready to, 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 to identify. So I think we've moved on a lot in that we are ready mm-hmm. to recognize. And, you know, I don't know if you watch Married at First Sight, but I don't know how many times they use the word gaslight now. They've overused it and they use it wrong. But, you know, people know what gaslighting is now. You know, five years ago, nobody knew what gaslighting was. I think people do know what, you know, a recognised abuse. Mm-hmm. I think in those days it was much more sort of put up and shut up and this is the marriage and whatever. Julie, obviously the study covered health, wellness, but there was that great show back in the 90s called Healthy, Wealthy and Wise. Where does money come into this equation? Yeah, money is quite important. So um, I think one of the, the big things that sets you up to being healthy in la- throughout life is your start in life and socioeconomic status. So a lot of people start way behind the starting line uh, because they they start with financial disadvantage and, and other forms of social disadvantage. So money is really important. Um, it's not to say that money will make you happy, but not having money will make you unhappy. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really important. We, we did a study quite early on with the data where we had a look at um, – health and, and um, longevity for the older women and um, having the women who had more money actually were happier So, uh, in terms of their mental health. So it, it sort of doesn't seem like rocket science, but it is interesting to show that that is a really important correlation, that the, the more financial resources people had, the happier they were in general. So money won't make you happy, but not having it might make you unhappy. And so... But, in terms of money, we we also know that the younger generations are struggling more with money than the older women are in general, mm-hmm. but with a couple of exceptions. So in the um, oldest cohort, when we first started studying, studying them in their 70s, about, 70, about 35% of them were widowed. And we had looked at what happened to women who were already widowed and women who were subsequently widowed over the course of the project. And that being losing your partner is probably one of the biggest um, assaults you can have in your life. You know, it's one of the biggest stressors. Um, women are amazingly resourceful and they they get through it. It's not to say they get over it. They never get over the loss of their husband, but they get through it and a new way of life emerges. But financial things were much more difficult. So they often lived in an older house which needed maintenance and it was a bit harder to get that maintenance. Um, it they, they went from a a double income to one income, whether that be a pension or, you know, or other forms of income. So so money was one of the things they never recovered from. They were always down a bit on the money side. Mm. Now, if you take come back a generation to the women who are now in their 70s, um, so those women, they haven't necessarily lost their husbands because the husbands are living longer. 
because um, we, you know, we decided to keep stop men from dying of heart attacks around about the age of 50, which they used to do. But the the those women are now getting, a lot of them are getting divorced. And this is a completely different matter because you're not only going from a double income to a single income, you're going from a whole house to half a house. Or And so for those women, the 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 risks moving into older age are quite large mm-hmm. and the difficulties are quite large. So they have huge concerns about um, where they'll live and how they'll finance their older age. So it's okay while they're working. So if they're 70, they can still be working and quite a lot of them are and quite a, them, a lot of them are because they have to. Um, but what happens when they can't work anymore and how are they going to survive? So older women are the, the fastest growing group of homelessness or the risk of homelessness. So that's a concern and it's a concern that governments are aware, are aware of and taking on and that we're not just us but a lot of people are collecting an enormous amount of data on that to try and urge some response on that. And, of course, if housing and rental affordability is not helping. So that's an issue for them. Previous generations of women had very little financial literacy Often their husbands would do it all. So the, the widowed women in the oldest cohort would say, oh, my husband did all of that and I had to learn to shop. I had, well, not to shop, but I had to learn to do the bills, the banking, I had to learn to drive, I had to do, learn to do all these things that my husband used to do. Um, more recent generations of women are a little bit more financially savvy, but probably not enough. Mm. So we do need to be teaching women about financial literacy and financial well-being. We probably need to be teaching young people in general that, but I think particularly women because Amen we do that. have a yeah yeah. So that's an important issue around money. Mm. Uh, and then when you get to older age, of course, there's all sorts of issues around money because the aged care finances are. Whoa! You could make a computer game, and nobody would get to the tenth level because it's just really, it's really um, complicated and difficult for anybody to understand. Um, yeah, they have aged care specialists that sit in the Centrelink office. I recommend people go to them and talk to them mm-hmm. because they understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's impossible to understand, yeah. even if you do have yeah. financial literacy. Yeah. Um, yes, mm. very confusing situation there. And again, yes. there's a lot of women, I guess, in the baby boomers that never worked. They were stay-at-home mums. They would have no super of their own. And yeah, women have very little super still at this stage. Yes, yes. And so, and also, look, most of those women—they're not even talking about superannuation. When we ask them, "What do you expect your income to be when you retire?" and now they have retired, um, it was the age pension. Mm. So you know, for them, supers—it's not super. It's it's the pension. Mm. And so if you're trying to live on the pension with if you're trying to live on the pension and own your own home, not too bad. But if you're trying to live on the pension and you don't own your own home and you're trying to get pay rent and um it's extreme extremely difficult, especially with the rental prices as they are now. And the other thing for those women is um is a question about who's gonna care for me. So, you know, if they're on their own, they don't have the big families that previous generations have um, or they might not have any children because women didn't, um, then, you know, there's a big question, who's going to care for me? Who's going to be my power of attorney? Um, all these questions um, for these women that are in those circumstances. So, yeah, there's some some women out there that are looking at older age and going, this is a puzzle that I don't even know where to start. Mm. So I'd actually suggest that the aged um, head services specialist officer at Centrelink could be a good person for them to contact Mm. as well. And it sounds like having this study, again, the government needs to make sure that there's enough of those available in each of the centres to be accessed as well. Yeah, and for people to access them early, I mean, I think there's this sense that 
well, I don't even know if the services are there yet for accessing early and the services that are there are really strapped. So, um, but we really need services that are there to provide people with advice way ahead, way up the stream um, and not at the point that you need it because, as I said, it's too late. Um, by the time you know you need it and by the time you get it, it's too late. Mm-hmm. We were talking about conditions that affect people and that all of these conditions tend to increase as people get older. But some of the symptoms that women have don't necessarily increase as they're getting older. So some of the symptoms that women have are more common when women are younger, for instance. So the we talked about mental health and how mental health tends to get a bit better with older age. But the but there's some symptoms like we found a lot of our young women were tired. So our older women weren't so tired, but the young women were much more likely to complain of tiredness. And if we think about a symptom like urinary incontinence, which we often think about older people needing the adult diapers, and um, which they might because of the changes in their body tissues that come with ageing. But um, we worked with a physiotherapist, Pauline Chirelli, and she wrote a book called One in Three Women Wet Themselves. So it doesn't really matter about age. So if you've had a baby, you're very likely to have some amount of urinary incontinence. So I think it's something as women we need to recognise through our lives. You know, we only have a very short urethra. We're not like the blokes that have about, you know, centimetres. And um, that urethra is, you know, so it's it, it's got a big job to, job to do. And our pelvic floor has got a big job to do. And we do things that um, upset our pelvic floor all the time we've got to be kind to it and we've got to strengthen it so that's the kegel exercises that people will know about and so that will help prevent incontinence and, and manage incontinence but also padding up and playing on is something we talk about as well with incontinence so yeah so it's not just something that happens to older women but it will happen uh with things that um uh increase with age Obese- so having a baby and the more babies you have obviously mm-hmm. constipation will make it worse um and, you know, anything that will increase, if you've got a chronic cough and things that increase your abdominal pressure, the um, obesity makes uh, increases the risk of incontinence and getting older will too because everything as you get older gets a little bit weaker and, um, you know, functions less well. So, so it's not just about being old, being incontinent. So uh, if women do have incontinence, um, they should seek help for that because there's help that can be had through physiotherapists and um, genitourinary specialists, urologists and so forth. I think, you know, the thing is it probably comes more part of women's lives when you're older, partly because, you know, you've got a little bit less control. But also, you know, you just sort of tend to lose a bit of, you know, it's it's a bit harder to maintain your dignity and independence when you're older. So when you're young, you might be able to pat up and play on and hide it. But when you're older, maybe everybody knows about it. But, um, yeah, it's um, I don't think it's something we should be ashamed of. So, so we should laugh and sneeze and wear ourselves and then, you know, work with it. <laughs> put it on the list, something to start working yeah, towards. If you don't yeah, want it to get yeah, any worse yeah, as you get older, yeah, it's up there with, yeah. as you say, with your yeah. diabetes, with your heart yeah. disease. Yeah. Um, it's in there as well. And it's like all our muscles. We've got to exercise them to keep them strong. So we've got to exercise those pelvic floor muscles. Oh, there's our next podcast, Julie. Thank you for the topic. Yeah. A quick pause in today's episode to share some of my must-try products at youmusttryit.com. Through the Aging Project, I've learned managing stress is something to be intentional about, which is why over at youmusttryit.com, we've created a stress and sleep page with all of our favourite products. After today's episode, go check out the Shakti mat. 
This is an acupressure mat with over 6,000 spikes. Yes, I swear by it, as do so many of our customers. Even previous guest, Dr. Peter Wright from the Vera Wellness Clinic said, I love this mat, Shelley. Thank you. It is my pleasure, Dr. Peter. <laughs> to grab yours, just go to youmusttryit.com and type Shakti. That's S-H-A-K-T-I. You'll also find essential oils, supplements and organic teas, all designed to reduce stress and aid sleep. Trust me, all are a must try. Just go to youmusttryit.com for a 10% discount off your first order and to join our community. The good news is we also ship internationally. Yes, we do. Alrighty, back to the show. Julie, one of the things, as you say, we start to notice, obviously, our eyesight is one, our hearing is one, but getting creaky, the aches and pains, mm -hmm. and being able to, I guess, differentiate aches and pains to arthritis. And I believe in your study, there was a lot of research there that people are getting actual diagnosed arthritis younger. Yes. So, um, so yes, you're right that there's a lot of aches and pains we get. They're not all arthritis. Some of the, you know, muscles and ligaments and that sort of thing. So being able to differentiate those, those things is important. Um, and, you know, if you do have aches and pains, uh, again, seek help and, and I'll recommend some physiotherapy because they can help sort of a lot with some of those sort of more muscular soft tissue aches and pains and keep you, keep you going. Mm -hmm. But the arthritis is, is that deterioration of the joints. The most common form of arthritis is, the, as you get older, is the osteoarthritis, which is a wear and tear arthritis. But some people might have other forms of inflammatory arthritis. I had a darling uh, orthopaedic surgeon professor when I was a young medical student named Gordon Kerridge. And, you know, anybody in Newcastle will know who I'm talking about. And he used to say to me, Julie, if you live long enough, you've got arthritis. If you haven't got arthritis, you haven't lived long enough. So, you know, and look, that's pretty well true in our data. You know, the women who were in the oldest group, you know, who got to live to their 90s, 90% of them had arthritis. So, you know, it's, it's you know, get old enough, you'll get arthritis. So um, so you're saying we should be looking forward to getting arthritis? But you don't want to get it too soon because it can be very painful and very limiting and, um, so, yeah, we are finding that the women are getting arthritis uh, younger. And so it, as we go down each cohort, you know, they're almost overtaking each other in terms of the prevalence of arthritis. So there's women in their mm. 20s um, uh, and 30s, you know, about 20% of women in their 20s, about 30 to 40% of women in their 40s have got some wow. form of um, arthritis. So, wow. yeah, so I think, you know, we we need to be, and, you know, when you get up to your 70s, it's about 60%. Um, so, you, you know, I think arthritis is probably an under-recognised disease because you don't die from it. But, boy, it can affect what you do and how you do it. Yeah, yeah, your, yeah. your quality so, of life. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what weight-bearing is, um, you know, weight is, again, it's one of the reasons why we're concerned about obesity because it will be increasing the risks of arthritis. Um, yeah. So, but uh, it's going to be one of say the... That, that, that weight-bearing exercise yeah, too well, that's is, right. is so yeah, good for that, isn't it? Sort stress, of, yeah. yeah, stress on your joints. So yes. it's one of the reasons people don't exercise, but, you know, find a way to exercise like, you know, aqua aerobics or something like that, that, or, you know, Tai Chi or something where it's not quite so stressful on your joints, but mm. yeah, the, um, don't use it as an excuse to not exercise. 
that's some treatment for your arthritis. A lot of people respond just to Panadol, which can be, you know, the first-line treatment for it, um, but getting some treatment so you can still keep moving. And I think um, people would advise not putting off your um, replacement surgery if you need it. Like you, mm-hmm. you don't want to delay it till you need it because if you get it too soon, it won't last so long. But I think getting it is better to get your um, surgery rather than, um, and, and then get back to moving and doing everything in your life than staying right. out of life because you can't move your knee or your knee's painful. But, yeah, so arthritis is becoming quite a, a prevalent problem and at younger ages for successive cohorts. So as we, as the baby boomer cohort moves through, arthritis is going to be extremely common and a big issue for these people, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I think we've got a complication now too because we've got quite a limited a range of, range of painkilling drugs that are available to people, particularly the oldest people who might need them. Um, so, you know, I think we've got a very sort of weighing up the um, the dangers of some of those opioid-type um, drugs in terms of people overusing them and, and dying because of that and the need for some people to use them to sort of mm-hmm. get their pain thresholds down, uh, pain down to a um, manageable level. Mm. Our first ever guest on the Ageing Project was Dr Vonda Wright who was um, an orthopaedic surgeon and she was all about that HIIT exercise, putting that strain and pressure on your bones, whether it is, you know, jogging, which is obviously a little bit more strenuous on on your bones than even just walking, Mm. um, but doing weights as well. Yes, keep those bones strong, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we want to be strong. And, you know, uh, women... um, there's a self saying that women get uh, men get no women get sick and men die. Or if you look at it, women have higher rates of disability but longer life expectancy. So, but uh, but you know you think about men, they have all this muscle mass and bone density that they accumulate during life, um, partly because of the testosterone, but also because because of the physical things that they mm-hmm. do and you know what they eat and uh, they eat a lot of protein. And so you know women tend to be not doing, like I shouldn't say they don't do weight-bearing exercises because, you know, I know my mum did a lot of weight-bearing exercise in manual work and things like that, but mm-hmm. just don't tend to build up the muscle mass that we, that men do. So I think being strong is really important. It's not just going out for a walk but getting that weight-bearing exercise and, and, and keeping those muscles strong too as well as the bones. Yeah, well, I guess that comes back to a society thing oh. too, isn't it, that strong women weren't considered to be... Oh, attractive. As beautiful as, as slender women, and that's not the case. We've got to get tough. We've got to get strong. Don't be skinny. Yeah, um, don't be skinny. I mean, we always talk about, you know, keep your weight in a healthy range, and that includes don't be too skinny. Like being too skinny is not good, and particularly when you're older, and we haven't mentioned this, but your weight, healthy weight range for older people is a little bit more. So it's a little bit more than the, the you know, the BMI of 25. It's more like a BMI of 27. Um, at, so you can be a little bit heavier when you're older um, because you need that bit of reserve. I love the fact early on in this discussion that you said that everyone has a story to write. And as you say, the elder women, they had been through um, incredible times. Our baby boomers have been through extraordinary times. We're experiencing extraordinary times and and our young women are going to experience extraordinary times as well nobody's story is any any better worse or different to anybody else's but it is your story and I think having ownership of that um, is something that can hold you in, in in great stead and again help you plan for how you want to live 
the next 25, 30, 40, however old you are, many years to come. So what advice would you give? You have all this knowledge now. You've done this amazing, as you say, longitudinal study, which has given you this vast amount of information. Um, How are you changing your life and what are you now looking forward to or what changes are you making to make the best out of the next half of your life? Sure. So, yes, I do feel really privileged that I've had this front row seat to the the lives of all these women and I've been able to learn so much, so many lessons and, and, and see their wisdom, which has been fantastic. It's been really amazing and wonderful. Um, so I think it's made me optimistic about my own ageing but a, a realist as well. And uh, so, you know, I... I know that I I've actually put on too much weight during COVID um I know how it happened I got very got a lot of comfort out of eating sausages and mashed potato and gravy so, comfort food right was, <laughs> the ultimate comfort food I I away with it because I was doing more exercise because I was you know going on all those lockdown walks but mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way so 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 yeah so I you know trying to get my exercise back on track Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to flip my I've, I've retired um, although I'm still working so that's uh, that's a whole other podcast on <laughs> what does it mean to be retired because for most people being retired doesn't mean sitting back on the lounge with your feet up mm-hmm. um, it means doing all sorts of things and you know when we talk to women about retirement it was I'm going to open a shop or I'm going to do another job or I you know so, oh, so I have retired but that means I, I work I feel like I'm working five days a week at the moment I'm, I'm child caring and I'm uh, looking after my mum but I, I've tried, tried to flip flip my work life balance a bit to say, well, I am going to prioritize going for a swim in the morning, so I've been doing that, or I'm going to prioritize at least getting in a walk, um, and um, I'm, I'm just trying to sort of get a little bit more me time so that my story does come through. At the moment, it feels like I'm living about five lives, and I'm not sure which one of them is mine. But anyway, um, yeah. But looking forward to, to try to say that and to learn this sense of what I value so I think I mentioned that I like doing art so I'm trying to do more of that for myself so um and yeah not for anyone else and the yeah so I think the most important things for me are exercise but also my husband and I have so many conversations about trying to learn lessons from where my mum's at so she's just entered residential aged care so I think the lessons we're learning are um to be adaptable so to try to keep learning Keep, you know, keep on, try to keep on top of all the new technology um, so that you don't get left behind. So mum never entered the iPhone age or the iPad age or computer age or anything. So we're trying to keep on top of the new technology. It's a bit hard. Um, but the, but uh, keep adapting. Um, keep having a positive attitude. That thing about gratitude that came from all of the women, that's really important. Uh, and I'm also really this wide window of opportunity. So I am on some preventative drugs. So I am on something to keep my cholesterol down. And because I'm pre-diabetic, I'm on metformin for that. But that's supposed to be a super aging drug anyway. So that'll keep me living forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so that like that's not much. I know I can do them a lot more. I could be going to the gym and lifting weights and doing all that sort of thing. And and I will try to get that happening too because the um, Going for a walk and going for a swim. Well, I won't be able to swim in winter. I don't like the cold water. But also, uh, you need the weight bearing exercise, not just the movement. So, yeah. So, um, and keep engaged um, in your family and community. And yeah, find your church because find the the, the people you belong to, mm-hmm. and that will keep 
keep bringing you um, joy and meaning in your life and that, um, you know, find what brings you meaning and make sure that you're able to keep doing that, even if it means asking for help to be able to do it. Very wise words from our Professor of Ageing. And if anyone knows how to do it right, it is someone who has studied it now for a very, very long time. Um, this paper is available, as I said, for everyone to read and we'll, of course, put that up on our website. But, Julie, what's it called for those that are desperate to get hold of it right now and where can they find it? Uh, it's on the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health website. So if you just type in A-L, sorry, I've got to get the letters right, A-L-S-W-H, uh, you'll find it, the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health. There's a lot of reports on there. So whatever you're interested in, there's reports on everything um, from contraception to reproduction to chronic disease to all sorts of things. Um, so, But this one's called Health and Wellbeing of Women in Midlife, Findings from the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health. And it does feature the women who were in their 40s when we started, who are now in their 70s, but compares them to women who were 70 at the start and women who are, are in their 40s now. So there's sort of overlapping cohorts. It's fantastic, Julie. And this study is continuing. You will all continue to follow the women that you've got now in their 20s and 30s? I have, as I said, I've retired, so I'm no longer the director of the study. The directors of the study are now Professor Gita Mishra in Queensland and Professor Deborah Loxton here in Newcastle, where I am. Uh, and so it's in great hands to keep going. And I have a title of being Special Envoy on the Oldest Cohort because I maintain my strong interest in those 100-year-old women. I love it. I'm sure you will have a lot to say when you get to 100 yep. as well and I'm, it'll all be oh, in the yeah. report. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So thank you so much for your time today, all Julie. Right. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Shelley. Listening to Julie was like getting a preview of life. The stories of the 57,000 women studied highlights the challenges we will all face at different life stages. From balancing career and family responsibilities, menopause and eventually dealing with age-related concerns, each stage poses unique hurdles. Don't you think that this information is powerful? For me, it's reaffirmed the importance of what we're doing here at The Ageing Project. Together, we can navigate the obstacles and support each other on the path to living our best lives at every stage. I think I'll be listening to this conversation a few more times. So thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to sign up at theagingproject.com.au to join our growing community. We're here to age well and we want to do it together. I'm Shelley Craft and this, my friends, has been another episode of the Aging Project podcast. Until next week, remember aging well comes down to our daily decisions in all areas of life. So let's choose wisely. As always, the Aging Project podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. Always seek medical advice from a qualified practitioner.